It's hard to believe, but only three generations ago, the only way to buy a drink in New York City was on the sly. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Prohibition was a constitutional ban on producing and selling beer, wine, and other liquor. It was in effect from 1920 to 1933. At one time, Prohibition was called a noble experiment. But in the end, it proved to be a dismal failure, especially in New York City. Michael Lerner is the author of a new book called Dry Manhattan, Prohibition in New York City. It's my pleasure to welcome Michael to Cityscape. Michael, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. First of all, Michael, I love the cover of your book. It's a great cover. It's eye-catching. Describe this cover for our listeners. Um, the designer at Harvard, uh, Tim Jones, did a fantastic job. It's a picture of a scene from 19, I think it's 1921, of the New York City police dumping a barrel of liquor into the sewer, uh, and that's super, superimposed on a tumbler. And then you have these law enforcement officials looking on yeah, in the background. On, yeah, uh, and I imagine scenes like this were fairly common and and rather ineffective. I've actually come across um, episodes in the research where crowds would gather to watch this sort of thing, and uh, the New York Times noted once that they were not at all in favor of what they were witnessing, but it sounds like this sort of thing was going on fairly commonly. The title of your book is an oxymoron, Dry Manhattan, because not only was Manhattan not dry, the entire city wasn't dry during Prohibition. It was as wet as a city could be. I mean, there's sort of a contest for bragging rights between which American city was wettest, whether uh, New Orleans or Detroit or Chicago. But New York is certainly up there in the running. It's kind of like baseball rivalries today, I guess. What was the mood like in the nation right up until Prohibition? What prompted this movement? Prohibition really comes out of the progressive era. The idea that the alcohol trade had become a serious problem. It was a large monopoly, just as there were monopolies in the meat industry um, or some of the other big industries, the oil trade, things that people were looking for big state solutions to this concentration of power. When you combine that with the concern over alcoholism, especially in the cities, then you get the kind of uh, reform impulse that leads people to think, well, you need to have a, a big big solution to a big problem. And people started looking at the Constitution as, as a way to, to address this. That was probably the furthest that any reform had gone. I mean, I think this is the biggest reform effort in American history, certainly when it comes to regulating individual behavior. That in itself would not have been enough to get a constitutional amendment banning the liquor trade on the books had it not been for... World War I coming along. And that was a way for the dry movement, which was really a lobbying effort. I think people have a misunderstanding that there was a, a huge popular um, you know, swelling of support for, for prohibition. There was popular support for it, but it was really the efforts of a lobbying movement led by the Anti-Saloon League that got this passed. And they used World War I as an excuse to silence their opponents by combining the liquor issue with issues of patriotism and, and national security. I mean, the language is often very similar to what you'll hear today about the war on terror. There was no way anyone could speak out against prohibition without being labeled um, a traitor. We want to keep our boys safe. We want to keep our boys safe. We don't want to waste resources, you know, things like bread, not booze. People were concerned you shouldn't be wasting grain and coal to make beer and liquor when there's a war going on. Ironically, the laws all went into effect after World War I was over, but they used the wartime effort to push it through uh, Congress and push it through the state legislatures. The Anti-Saloon League had an amazing lobbyist by the name of William Anderson. Yes. He was 
as gutsy as they come. I mean, he he really is a fascinating character. He would stop at nothing to get his agenda moving forward. He blackmailed people. He smeared people. He would use the hardest tactics, hardball tactics, dirty politics. Um, one, one New York politician said it's the kind of stuff that makes your hair stand on end. He uh, would set people up with false letters saying they had the support of liquor dealers. If someone was in his way, he would go after them uh, nonstop. And this was the way the Anti-Saloon League kept people in line. They knew that if you stood up against the Anti-Saloon League, there was a good chance you would lose your job. And New York was a major bullseye for this guy. He really targeted New York. Yeah, New York was really the main target for this reform movement. New York was really the the immigrant city, and the dry movement was concerned not only that they had to get the immigrant culture of New York in line with what they had in mind. They wanted people in New York to comply with their idea of what uh, uh, the moral standard for the nation was. But they also wanted to make New York a model. They figured if New York went dry, you could use that. They, they actually talked about this, using this as a launching uh, pad to spread this to other parts of the world, that foreign tourists, Europeans, would come to New York, and if they saw Prohibition working in New York City, they would take that back with them to wherever they came from and see how, you know, and talk about what a great reform it was. So there was really a sense that this was going to be an international model of temperance. It's kind of crazy to think that anyone would ever think of New York that way. And boy, were they wrong. You open your book with the mayor of Berlin coming to New York and asking the question, when is prohibition going to kick in? And in fact, it already had kicked in. Yeah, it had been in place for about a decade when he said that. Um, You know, other papers commented at various points, New York couldn't even stay dry for one day. You know, even on the very first night of Prohibition, there were arrests going on. I think initially there was slight optimism among some people. There actually, we don't want to be too uh, simplistic about it. There were people in New York who supported this or at least had a a wait-and-see attitude about it. Um, but it didn't take long for the for the opposition to come out of the woodwork. New York City, as you say, is an immigrant city. How did immigrants respond to prohibition, especially that drinking is such a big part of their culture? Whether it was Irish, the Germans, the Russians, the Italians, uh, Greeks, everyone had their drink and their their drinking practices. And they also, part of this had a lot to do with the, the need for the saloon. When people live in cramped tenement quarters... They have no living room. The bar on the corner is their living room. So this was the place where you'd get the news and you'd talk to your friends or your family. Um, Often it was the place with the telephone. It was the place with lights. It was the place with the newspapers. It was the place where the bartender could translate a letter for you. So there was an enormous social function for the saloon in New York that I don't think the drys really understood. Very few of them seemed to understand how central that place was to New Yorkers. Were immigrants the biggest violators of prohibition in the city? Probably by numbers, yes, but it would be fair to single them out because the law was being broken up and down the class ladder. You were as likely to find liquor in upper-class homes as you were in working-class homes. In fact, more likely, even though the numbers, there were more immigrants than there were rich people, but that doesn't mean that they were uh, any more out of line with the law. I think over time, every class group in New York uh, really saw that this was, even going into it, maybe thought this was a law that applied to the other guy, not to them. And there was a strange loophole in the amendment that said, even though the manufacturer sale and transportation of liquor or alcohol was illegal, possession was not. And if you had money, 
as you know the the elite of New York did, you could buy up every drop of liquor you could get your hands on and stockpile it and hope it just lasted you a long time. I've actually seen ads for uh, seltzer distributors uh, basically advertising their product as a way to stretch your liquor supply once New York goes dry. Even though people of all walks of life were violating prohibition, the immigrant population felt that they were specifically targeted for enforcement. They were targeted. They were the most likely targets of raids when federal resources and and police resources were allocated. They weren't going to go after the private clubs that hosted the richest New Yorkers. They weren't going to go after the big guys. They were going after the small you know, the small-time offenders. And that's what you found on the Lower East Side and in Harlem and in the Bronx. Um, it was it was the working-class neighborhoods that there was the most pressure to, to reform. Let's talk about enforcement for a moment, because the makers of Prohibition really had a simplistic view of this law that you would put it in place and people would obey it. A constitutional amendment. Who's not going to obey a constitutional amendment? Which is funny because so many amendments had been routinely ignored. I mean, if you look at the civil rights amendments after Reconstruction, they had been ignored. But the, but the idea was that once you put this on the books, it wouldn't take a great deal to get people to come in line with it. Uh, there might They expected there'd be some slow resistance in some of the cities, but that, that would go away over time. They especially counted on the middle class middle-class Americans to set an example. And I guess they figured that over time, that example would be strong enough to bring ethnic Americans in line. Instead, the opposite is what happened. Middle-class Americans looked at what was coming out of Prohibition, and suddenly the world of the speakeasy and the nightclub became so much more alluring that they ended up abandoning the dry cause, even though they had been really strong supporters of it earlier. The NYPD was reluctantly dragged into enforcing this law. Yes. The amendment allowed what they called concurrent enforcement, meaning that state agencies, state laws could also contribute to to the enforcement of the amendment. And New York State passed something called the Mullen-Gage Law in 1920, which was sort of the state-level equivalent of the Volstead Act, which was the federal law enforcing prohibition. And when that passed, the New York Police Department got dragged into this. And the Rank and file thought this was the dumbest idea imaginable. They resented this enormously. The fact that the city police force was overwhelmingly Irish Catholic had a lot to do with it. And they certainly didn't want to be called in to start policing their friends and their neighbors. Um, And they saw that this was just going to make the police a despised presence in the city. They thought, there goes our relationship with the community. It was one thing for everyone to hate the Bureau of Prohibition, but they didn't want to be the second most hated group of people in New York. And and, uh, Prohibition was going to set them up for that. And what happened here was that people lost respect and trust in the police department and federal agents, of course, because these folks were taking money to look the other way. People were routinely taking bribes. Uh, people would, police would confiscate liquor and then sell it back to other speakeasies, sometimes sell it back to the same speakeasy. They were doubling, tripling, quadrupling their salaries on bribes that they were taking. They were shaking down customers. Uh, And they could go crazy and smash places up, beat people up. There are a lot of examples of uh, prohibition raids just gone berserk where there seems to be no consideration for due process. I'm sure some of this comes from frustration 
that anytime you shut a place down, you turn around and, and the next place would be open or two places or three places to replace it. So they saw this was a losing battle. And given the amount of money that was circulating through this trade, it's easy to see why um, bribery became such a big part of this culture. At one point, there were some 32,000 speakeasies in New York City? Well, that's one estimate. It, I mean, it could be 40,000. It could be 60,000. There's really no way to know. I mean, people who are breaking the law don't maintain the most clear records. Um, but that was one estimate, 32,000 speakeasies. Whatever the number was, it was far above what the number of licensed bars had been before Prohibition went into effect. They Speakeasies were all over the city. They were hidden in any conceivable uh, location. Um, so th- I don't think we'll ever have a, a good uh, estimate of the, of the true number. But the New York Police Department came up with that number at one point, 32,000. People who didn't drink before prohibition started to drink. You use humorist Robert Benchley as an example of that in the book. You know, he became known as a drinker, but, you know, raised in a prohibitionist household in Worcester, Massachusetts. He had heard Carrie Nation speak to his Sunday school. He wrote editorials in in the Harvard newspaper in support of prohibition, comes to New York, sees his friends drinking, gets the bug, and suddenly he's part of that world. And I think that was a fairly common occurrence that people who had been opposed to drinking suddenly were tempted by this whole new culture that went with it. And that was hard to resist. You know, if that's where the action was and you wanted to be part of New York City life in the 1920s, it was hard to sort of stand on the sidelines and say, I'm not going to drink. So he became a part of that. It ultimately would kill him in some regards. But uh, the allure was was very strong. Alcoholism was a big problem, I would imagine. Alcoholism, alcohol poisoning. The great irony is the argument was that this would do away with the problem of alcohol, and instead it became worse. People were drinking more. They were drinking harder liquor because that's where the market went. It was much more efficient economically to sell hard liquor than beer or wine, so that became the dominant drink. And the quality was also a real problem. Most, uh, at one point, you know, 90-plus percent of the liquor available in New York was tainted. And people, it was killing people. People were also making their own alcohol and causing hazards in their homes because of it. Yeah, stills. People would could buy stills at the hardware store and try to distill their own alcohol at home. And uh, still explosions were fairly common occurrence. You'd come across reports in the papers on a fairly regular basis of people blowing up their kitchens kids getting killed, about people being burned. How strong was the mob influence in the illegal alcohol trade? Without the records, I mean, (laughs) organized crime doesn't keep meticulous records, at least not that we've found. But they definitely see the opportunity that this market provides, and uh, organized crime grows enormously in New York during the 1920s. You know, there was a large, extensive network of speedboats and warehouses and trucks that was set up, and there was money for bribery. You could pay off precinct captains and political officials. So organized crime really uh, uses prohibition to gain a foothold. And I, you know, many people argue that's what, what gets them over the top. I mean, that's going to give them their bread and butter. Uh, and once prohibition is gone, they're so well established, it's going to be even harder to get rid of them. But there are great opportunities for organized crime during prohibition. And there were hits in New York City. People were taken out because they were competing with other people. Yeah, generally the rule of thumb was don't compete. There's enough to go around. Divvy it up nicely and we won't cause any scandals and the police won't come down hard on us. Occasionally, you'd get the renegade who uh, goes 
ballistic, literally. Um, and you do see uh, instances of shootings on the street, uh, wild gunfights. I think that's been exaggerated a great deal in the popular culture. I mean, really, organized crime made an effort in the 20s to get along with each other. But when you had your renegade who went crazy, you'd, you'd have a bloodbath. And in the late 20s in particular, I think that becomes more common. You don't see as much of that in the early 20s, but by the late 20s, you see a little bit more of it. And it's one of the things that really starts pushing people to realize this has gone long enough and something needs to be done about it. There was one incident in the book where a child was killed in one of these shootouts, and the person who shot the child went right back into a life of illegal alcohol. Yes. The judicial system was very ineffective in terms of catching people like this. It was very difficult to convict people in cases. Jurors were were very skeptical of the cases that were presented to them. And it wasn't surprising that someone like that could get away with not only bootlegging, but being involved in, in violence and murder and be out and right back at it. Um, ultimately, this in this particular case, he's wiped out by uh, by a rival gangster. They kind of had their own code of justice. But the, the judicial system just had a horrible time going after people. You just couldn't get them behind bars. The courts initially were overwhelmed by people being brought in for petty offenses, just having a little bit of alcohol. A, a shot of whiskey, uh, a glass of wine, uh, a small bottle in your lunch pail. These were the kind of cases that are winding up in federal court. And federal judges were furious. They just thought this was the most demeaning thing. You know, people write about, I didn't, I didn't spend my career to get to this point and be hearing cases about you know, three shots of whiskey being sold on a Lower East Side speakeasy. The backlog of cases was so extreme that special court sessions had to be called. You know, it might be a year and a half before many cases came to trial. Uh, The plea bargain becomes a mainstay of American judicial practice in the 1920s to deal with the backlog of prohibition cases. It was just much easier to say, walk into a courtroom and say, everyone who's here for a liquor case, if you plead guilty, I'll let you go today with a fine. Uh, if you if you go to trial, we'll throw the book at you. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Our guest this morning is Michael Lerner. He's the author of a new book called Dry Manhattan, Prohibition in New York City. Coming up, our conversation will turn to some of the more interesting nightclubs that opened up during the Prohibition era. The New Yorker was born during the days of Prohibition. How did the dry era influence the magazine's take on New York? Here was a new magazine looking to write to the people of the city of New York in a new and interesting way to make it a very local magazine but a very cosmopolitan one at the same time. And covering the city's nightlife became one of its defining characteristics. It was filled with coverage of the club's and the speakeasies and just observations of what people were doing after dark in New York during the 1920s. So the combination was a very fortuitous one, uh, both for New Yorkers who could read in the New Yorker what was going on in town and for the New Yorker, which was looking to find an audience. And I think Prohibition culture really helped it find its audience. Prohibition really reformed New York City nightlife, and we had even nightclubs 
that came to be because of Prohibition, really neat ones here in the city. Yeah, it sort of raised the bar for the extravagance um, and allure. I, I think part of it is just competition. There were so many uh, people looking to get into the exciting world of nightclubs that Prohibition seemed to unleash that you'd find themes, you know, southern plantations, ocean liners, nightclubs that were made to look like giant aquariums. Um, it, nothing was too grand or too spectacular. Uh, these were expensive, and you, you had to charge the prices uh, to go with this. So these, um, you know, this, this became a very, very extravagant affair. Um, and these were, everyone seemed to find a way to go to one of these places at some point, but I, it's hard to imagine how people could afford this. I mean, the prices were really ridiculous. I came across one one example where a guy said he spent $1,300 one night, you know, and that's in, in 1920s dollars. And he said, it was worth it. I had a hell of a good time. Many of these establishments opened up in Harlem, and you devote a chapter in your book to Harlem during Prohibition. How did Prohibition impact Harlem, and more specifically, how did it affect the city's black population? African Americans faced a real dilemma. The the old guard, um, who I call the black Victorians in the book, they saw this as an opportunity to prove themselves, that there's this new law in the books that says, here's how people need to behave in private. And they felt that if they complied with that, it would just strengthen their argument that they were good citizens, they they deserved respect, they deserved rights. And if you obeyed the 18th Amendment, then those civil rights amendments, the, the 14th and 15th Amendments, they had to be enforced. You know, you couldn't call for the enforcement of one and not the other. And so that's a very poignant argument that people were making, that prohibition would be good for black New York. Then there's the younger generation. Um, A lot of these were migrants from the South uh, or or just people who'd grown up in the city but were younger and and slightly divorced from the the older guard. And they saw this as part of city life. The, The Harlem Renaissance is going on. Jazz is coming into its own. The nightclubs and speakeasies are the proving ground for jazz, and this was just part of life in the city. And they said you had to be realistic about that, that you couldn't hold blacks to a different standard and say, you know, you have to abide by this when no one else is. Some black New Yorkers even looked at this as a possible breakthrough in race relations. They thought the fact that so many people were coming to Harlem for entertainment and for jazz and for the nightclubs and speakeasies was bringing blacks and whites together in ways that had never happened in New York before. So they were guardedly optimistic that there'd be some sort of breakthrough in race relations. They were disappointed in the end because really the slumming mentality um, is what dominates here, that whites went to Harlem looking for thrills and then forgot all about it when they went back to work the next day or when they went home. So there was no real breakthrough, but it's interesting to see how people talked about that as a possibility. The market also created a space for women, and we saw the introduction of the flapper during this time. Yes. Women, just like African Americans, just like immigrants, I mean, they all, they had their particular experience in prohibition. And in a sense, prohibition was a great leveling um, of men and women that women had been drinking in bars in New York before prohibition. I wouldn't want people to think that prohibition invents this. But it goes to a, a whole new level during prohibition because questions of respectability become so much less relevant when the idea of appearing smart and sophisticated takes over. Um, So women basically found they could be a part of this world um, and, and hold their own 
and you know drink like the fellas did um, with all the pros and cons that come with that. It wasn't always pretty, uh, but women definitely were engaged in, in New York drinking culture in a way they had not been before, and certainly in numbers that they had not been before. And some of them ran some of the most popular establishments in the city. Yeah, there were a couple of very famous nightclub hostesses. Texas Guinan is my favorite, uh, Helen Morgan, Belle Livingston. Texas Guinan, some people you know referred to her as, as sort of Jimmy Walker, Mayor Jimmy Walker's counterpoint. If Jimmy Walker rules Manhattan by day, it was Texas Guinan who ruled the city by night. And she became a real hero to, or heroine, to uh, people who wanted to stand up to the dry law. She was not going to take this law sitting down, and she had a very tongue-in-cheek way of uh, flaunting it. You know, her, her clubs were raided repeatedly, and she started wearing a, a charm bracelet of padlocks uh, to symbolize all the efforts of the Bureau to padlock her club. Mayor Jimmy Walker, you mentioned, he was a staunch opponent of prohibition. He was not ashamed to say that he drank. He went out on the town a lot. Um, he was a real dandy. He was known, you know, for changing his clothes four times a day, uh, for being out till all hours. You know, you didn't come out openly and say, I had, you know, 14 cocktails last night or four or whatever. But people knew Jimmy Walker was the nightclub mayor. And uh, you didn't have to say much more than that. People got it. We also had a governor, Governor Alfred Smith, who fought to overturn prohibition. Yeah, Al Smith was one of the national leaders in uh, standing up against this law. And it was it was gutsy. It was a really difficult thing to do. And for most of the 1920s, politicians in general, whether it's in, in New York or across the country, were terrified of standing up to the dry lobby. And Al Smith was one of the first who who said this is something that, that Americans shouldn't abide by. And uh, he wasn't always so forthright about repealing it, but he definitely made his displeasure known. And as time passed, he really became the focal figure of, of getting a repeal movement started. Women were very prominent in the fight for and against prohibition. One woman in particular fought to end prohibition, and she really helped the cause quite a bit. It's amazing that I, th I think this is one of the, the uh, least known aspects of prohibition. The stereotypical view of uh, the Women's, temperance, or Women's Christian Temperance Union and Carrie Nation, the old lady running around with an axe and a Bible smashing up bars, that's the American view of, of a temperance activist. And people in holding on to that image and that stereotype have completely missed the story of uh, Pauline Sabin. Pauline Sabin was the leader of a group called the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform. And she was a wealthy Republican. She had at one time been a supporter of prohibition, or at least, you know, someone who was willing to give it a chance. And by the late 20s, she could see what it was doing to the country and broke with her party and spent the last four years of the prohibition era mobilizing women against prohibition all across the country. And she did a fantastic job. Her group became the leading repeal group in the nation and uh, far outnumbered some of the other groups that had been around for a while had been very ineffective. She made this a real grassroots movement and gave women a voice against repeal. She made it okay for women to come out publicly and say, I think this is a dumb idea too. And it's not because I like to drink. It's because I can see what it's doing to my family, to my kids, to my community. It's just a bad law and it needs to be reformed. And women 
coming out this way really demolished the last vestige of uh, the dry movement. They could no longer claim that women were in favor of prohibition when so many millions of American women were coming out uh, to support Pauline Sabin call for repeal. And finally, it was the Great Depression and FDR who brought about the repeal of prohibition. Yeah, the Depression was in some ways the last straw that once the market crashes, no one really cares about nightlife anymore. A lot of nightclubs in New York close. The luxury market is gone. These places were expensive. People are still drinking. Um, <laughs> they're just drowning their sorrows rather than having a good time. But the Depression really became the last straw that people started arguing. There were so many more important issues to be dealt with in the Depression that using even a penny of government money to enforce prohibition when people were starving was an outrage. We haven't seen a constitutional amendment overturned ever since. I guess that says a lot. Yeah, it's not a not an easy thing to do. Um, and there were, there were many people who thought that America would just have to live with the 18th Amendment, that there was no way to get an amendment off the books. It is a difficult battle initially to convince people that the 18th Amendment had to be repealed. But the political willpower emerges in the early 30s, and it does happen. But, it, you know, I think I would hope that the, the lesson of not messing with the Constitution is one of the, the lessons that sticks from the Prohibition era. We'll see. We're actually in the midst of that today with gay marriage and other issues like the uh, flag desecration. Yeah, and I try not to specifically address any of that in the book, but I think anyone who reads it will see the parallels and Anytime anyone talks about putting something in the Constitution, I think people need to think back to prohibition and think what kind of amendments belong in the Constitution and are they enforceable uh, and are they things you really want to invest long-term support for. It's not something to toy with. Michael Lerner, your book is Dry Manhattan, Prohibition in New York City. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Dry Manhattan is published by Harvard University Press. If you're thirsty for a past edition of Cityscape, you can find our archives and to learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. My thanks to producer Jody Afrogan. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend.